This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. No, Violet Bulawayo, it's been so long since I saw you last, which was, I think, either at the LA Times Festival of Books, where you just won the Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction for We Need New Names, or it was possibly Barnes & Noble's own Discoverer Awards, where you also won a prize for We Need New yes. Names. But it's been a while, and your new novel, Glory, has just landed. And I'm so happy to see you. But when you started writing Glory, you thought you might make this a nonfiction book. And then you changed your mind and made it into a novel. So would you set this up for listeners, please? Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Glory came to me in November 2017 in the form of the unexpected fall by coup of Zimbabwe's president of nearly four decades. It was an event, one that I did not expect to see in my lifetime. I had actually imagined he would die in office. One of my favorite quotes by Robert Mugabe says, only God will remove me, something like that. So November 14, 2017 came along and I found myself headed to Zimbabwe just to witness the moment on the ground. And it was an exciting moment, complicated but exciting for people who had basically tried every possible way to be read of Robert Mugabe and failed. And within the next weeks, the next months, we saw such a barrage of writing articles and then eventually books by people who were interested in the moment. And I was one of those people. At the time, I was interested in the fall, what the moment meant for us as Zimbabweans, reconciling the past, where Mugabe had taken us, where we were and where we were hopefully going. But a few months into the project, I realized that, you know what, with everything that had been said, I probably ran the risk of having nothing new and exciting to say. And fortunately, the time that I spent on the ground listening to people's stories, living life and connecting with the homeland that I had left at 18, and had never quite gotten the chance to experience firsthand for a long time because my visits were limited by the fact that I had a teaching job in the U.S. So at most, I'd go maybe four weeks, no more than a month or two. And here I was spending months. And within that time, I realized that the story needed to be about regular citizens. But because so much had been written, I found myself needing a new way of telling the story, a story that was very public, that was on everybody's lips. And I noticed at the time that Zimbabweans were starting to refer to Animal Farm in talking about our politics. People using avatars, people assigning names from the novel to our leaders. I also found myself thinking back to my grandmother's animal stories. I was raised on Oricha. And I realized that it was actually a working way of telling the Zimbabwean story. And I gave it a shot and the rest is history. My fictional country of farm animals named Chitata was born. And so was glory in this current form. Old Horse is the leader who's deposed. His wife is a donkey with a PhD. There are other characters that surface throughout the story, but there is a young goat called Destiny who has left her home and now just returned so that she can tell the story. How do we want to describe Destiny's mother's relationship with her country's history in a way that doesn't spoil the bigger piece of the story? We can just call it 
complicated mm -hmm. because of a traumatic past. Destiny is a stand-in for the audience. Destiny could be read as a stand-in for you. I mean, you had left Zimbabwe in 99 to come to the States to study and get your MFA and join the Stegner program at Stanford. You went back to Zimbabwe for the first time in 13, and then there you are, just after 17, just after Mugabe has been deposed in this moment that you literally thought you would never see. What was that like, the shift between 13 to 17, and how did that help inform Destiny's voice? It certainly informed Destiny in the sense that we both share, I guess, the experience of exile, of being disconnected from the homeland. But of course, my story does not quite hold the trauma that Destiny's story does. She lives because of violence, but for violent reasons, she lives in search of refuge whereas I live in search of greener pastures, I guess. But the journey back, the journey of return, the journey of going to reconnect with the homeland is kind of similar because we are both going to deal with a nation that has a complicated history of violence. For destiny, she literally bears the scars and she gets home to actually realize that she's not the only one who bears the scars. Her mother Semiso actually bears physical scars from an earlier wave of violence that happened between the years 1983 to 1987. Destiny has no idea about that past. Now, when I went back at the fall of Robert Mugabe, at the fall of Robert Mugabe, that story was not necessarily new to me. I had grown up hearing about it from family members and, of course, reading about it from people who had written about the period. And thanks to the internet and the works of journalists like Zenzel and Debele, who has done an amazing job curating the stories of people who suffered during the period that is known as Kukurahundi. It was a story that was really front and center in my imagination as an artist, especially for how it marked and tainted the reign of Robert Mugabe. And by extension, his successor and the ruling party. You know, there's so many narratives where when the dictator is toppled, the country has found its freedom or the people are in a new place or things are just better. But you capture the sense of chaos and the sense of discomfort that ordinary people experience because of mm. this extraordinary moment in their history. And yet here, so many of us are taught, and especially in America, where it's, you know, the call to freedom and topple the bad guy and all of the good things will come. And it is more complicated than that. You spent a lot of time talking to people in Zimbabwe while you were there. And there are moments in the book where I don't know if you're using notes or if you're simply, there's lots of dialogue that happens both in terms of social media, but also there's a great chapter where it's people standing in line waiting and I think it was to get into the grocery store. And yes. they're just talking amongst themselves. And you get this incredible portrait of a collective trauma. And it's not just Gukurandi. It's the day-to-day. -day. Is torment too strong a word? Because it feels to me that, and I do know a bit of the history of, of what Zimbabwe went through under Mugabe. Absolutely, but absolutely. I don't think torment is strong of a word. I think it best captures what it is to live in Zimbabwe today. 
it's not easy. From getting up in the morning, this is the month of January, for instance, most parents are worrying about sending their children to school, tuition, mm-hmm. but the reality is that at least 80% of the population is not employed. Of course, my people are a hardworking, creative people. They come up with informal ways to make a living. But parents are struggling with tuition, with uh, how to feed their children. If you have more than one and they are in boarding school or the higher up they are, it is complicated. The cost of living, the standard of living is super high. And just the daily stress of living in a country that is unfree. We are headed toward the 2023 elections, for instance, and we are already starting to see a prelude of the violence that we are going to expect, that we unfortunately have come to expect because we are not necessarily a free space. So, you know, power cuts, for example, going back to what the day-to-day experience looks like, people living without water, without basic services. We are in the heart of COVID right now. If your health is not in good shape, you are in danger, not just from the virus itself, but finding yourself in hospitals that really don't have the capacity to ensure your well-being and your surviving. So these are the daily headaches that contribute to the indignities that Zimbabweans have to face. And part of why I keep coming back to all of this is you made a very conscious decision to use animals to tell the story. And not just because Zimbabweans were using the narrative of George Orwell's animal farm on social to represent themselves and what they were experiencing. But I think you said in an earlier interview, either with the LA Times or the New York Times, that you were taking a step back, that it allowed you distance in order to be able to tell this story. And I just want listeners to really be able to understand how monumental the situation in Zimbabwe is for people who live there now and just sort of what the daily life is like. You've stretched a bit, obviously. We have a terrific cast of characters that I frequently forgot. (laughs) We're animals. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. For me, it actually gave me the freedom. Mm -hmm. Number one, of course, it's an ongoing story. There was a point I felt, especially when I was working with the in the nonfiction mode, where I felt like I was competing with the reality and sometimes the reality just felt too outrageous. But then starting to use animals actually gave me the much needed distance. I could breathe as a creative. I could take my story wherever it wanted while still keeping the original inspiration in sight. I could give my characters lives of their own. That gave them a break from what gradually felt like a constricting reality. And of course, the beauty of using animals, which is really a common denominator in stories across all borders, all over the world, I feel like is that it started to make me feel like I was not writing a Zimbabwean story. I was writing a universal story that could have been happening anywhere, that could happen anywhere where there was tyranny. And of course, I wrote at a time of so much upheaval, really, from so many different places. Just being steeped in those moments and working with characters and realizing that my my animals were not necessarily Zimbabwean felt like such a gift, I guess. We're taping this on March 8th, and anyone who's been following the news knows what the landscape looks like right now, and we don't actually know what 
the landscape's going to look like tomorrow or the day after, even next week, when this episode is going to air. And the idea of the culture and the community sharing this very great traumatic 40-year period and then being surprised when it ends because you're not the only person, I'm sure, who never thought they would see the fall of Mugabe in their lifetime. And, you know, there are plenty of Zimbabwean expats, too, some who can't go home because of what happened during his regime. And one of the pieces that your narrative wrestles with is the idea of multiple points of view, where is he a dictator and an oligarch, or was he the savior, and was he the freedom fighter, and what is this story? You know, Mugabe started as the guy who overthrew a white colonial government, but then the infighting comes and the corruption comes and all of these pieces where you're like, who am I looking at? Are you actually the hero or are you the guy who's going to make things worse? Definitely, definitely. He very much started a hero, more so for some of us who were born right at the beginning of his reign. I think my generation was considered the freedom of promise for many reasons, including that well, we thought we were lucky <laughs> to be born at such a turn for the country, but it very quickly became apparent that in fighting the monster, our liberators themselves became monsters. And I think that can be said of many of these post-colonial states, really, where the idea of freedom is no longer neat because the question of whether we are free is something that we can no longer run away from as you consider the many struggles for freedom that are going on at the moment. And that's something that the majority of the book actually grapples with all up until the end when the collective, when the citizenry realizes that, you know, we need new ways of imagining what that freedom looks like. And they actually decide that instead of investing on one person, I think part of the problem is that we put so much on Mugabe, the person, versus investing in institutions, versus in having citizens actually see themselves as participants in their own liberation. So that is an idea that the end of glory, especially now I'm doing a big spoiler. (laughs) But I think we're also leaving out plenty of surprises for readers. But I will say Glory does end on a somewhat hopeful note. And I'm wondering, are you hopeful for Zimbabwe's future? I am hopeful because in as much as we are in a predicament right now, I believe that the struggle for our independence is still alive. I have faith in the young people. You know, the generation that they are fighting against is on its way out. Of course, they'll have to figure out what the Zimbabwe they will live in will look like. But I do have hope because these are people who are not tainted by the greed, by the corruption, by the abuse, by the violence that has held us hostage for the near four decades. I think it was about a decade ago, someone in the UK did a study that proved that reading fiction expands your empathy. And I think having finished Glory, I'm hoping that happens for readers who may not necessarily be invested in the specific story of Zimbabwe, but I do think you've written an incredibly universal tale about good intentions gone awry. I think you also make a really important point 
about the book, too, in how we tell our stories and who we tell our stories to, and who suddenly decides that they're the victim in the story. (laughs) There's a lot that I think people will find current parallels with, but I want to go back to your debut for a second, because both your new novel, Glory, and your debut, We Need New Names, have spectacular voice to them. And it's not just Destiny, and it's not just Darling who narrates the bulk of We Need New Names, but I'm talking about narrative voice. I'm talking about the soul of the book itself. I want to take a minute and talk to you about how you build your characters and how you build these stories, because I'm still very, very fond of Darling. And it had been a while since I'd read We Need New Names, and I went back to it, obviously, while I was prepping for this. And that opening chapter, which you won the Kane Prize for African Literature for, mm. it still really swings. But then we get Darling in Detroit <laughs> and Kalamazoo. And there's this giant swing. So can we just go back to your first book for a second and talk about the creation of Darling and her voice sure. and that story? Because I can see the line mm. between We Need New Names and Glory and the voice of both books. But there might actually be some people who haven't read We Need New Names. and. I'd like to bring them into the fold. All right. Thank you. I'm always at a loss to talk about the things that work so well in my writing. But character really is the heartbeat of the story for me. And as a creator, I do the hard work of trying to build compelling characters that have the power to move readers, that allow readers to connect with them that interesting, that have something to say, usually about the world, the current moment. I I can't run away from that. I think my writing tends to be political, whether or not I intend. It's It's such a default. It happens by default. And of course, voice is a big way for me to make my characters come alive. And I think, again, thinking of my influences, the writers, whose work speaks to me on the level of voice writers like uh, Toni Morrison, for instance, Edward P. Jones, Yvonne Vera. I think these are among some of the masters who taught me about what making a presence, an unforgettable presence, hopefully, on the page looks like. And of course, the told stories. In talking about our influences, I feel like we are almost limited to talking about books. And the reality is that, you know, not all of us were brought up on books. I was, I heard stories before I even knew what a book looked like. And I think that has a lot to do with how I process voice, how I understand voice, the heart and the passion that I bring to the page. When you were sitting down to start Glory, I'm working off the assumption that Darling was the first voice that appeared for We Need New Names, right? You probably had her before you had anyone else, or am I I wrong about that? She happened in the messiness of creating, yes. But who showed up first in glory? I mean, were you working from Old Horse, who's the leader who's deposed, or did you start with Destiny and her mother? I think I actually started with Old Horse. Mm-hmm. Because it was the obvious mm-hmm. place to start. That's where the opening moments of the book, inspired by the reality, of course, mm-hmm. happened. And then Destiny came, I think, while I was researching, really, and spending time with people, accompanying family members or strangers. What I love about being home is the opportunity to talk to random people. While 
a significant percentage of the population drive cars, for instance, most people actually use public taxis. And I love those because you just get in a public taxi. It looks like a minibus with 14 strangers. And I'm one of those people who just loves to talk, start conversations. And I love the openness of my people. Somebody will just open up and start telling you their business. And I think that's how I kind of met Destiny. And of course, I had myself in mind the idea that I had returned to the space at what looked like a turning point at a critical time. So kind of playing with those threads inspired Destiny for me. Once she came to life, my editors, who are brilliant readers, were very quickly, and my agent as well, who's amazing. Thank you, Jean. <laughs> were very quickly to fall in love with her and demand that I do more with Destiny. She really is a great character. Her path is a little unexpected, but she's a really terrific voice. I just want to go back to something you said a second ago, though. You said, when I'm home, and you were talking about Zimbabwe. And you've been in the States for a really long time, but Zimbabwe's still home, yeah? <laughs> well, Zimbabwe is, is still home. Uh, I, I spent my formative years there. Mm-hmm. Most of my family is there. It's where I exist without being questioned in ways that sometimes can happen in the U.S. in specific areas, especially during the Trump years, where the question of belonging for those of us who exist in bodies not deemed welcome in this space. So it is home in that sense. I'm not saying it has no complications. That said, you're right. I've spent about half my life in the U.S. as well. In as much as it's complicated, I claim it. I've made a home here. And... uh, It is unfortunate that Glory was written between two homes that were messed up. From Mugabe, Zimbabwe, now Mnangagwa, Zimbabwe, and Trump's America, it really felt like, okay, where is home and what is home? I really was thinking about that quite a lot. But that is part of the predicament of being human and negotiating these spaces. It also seems to me that for writers, you need to be on the outside of whatever it is you're writing about. And when home is a big piece of what you're writing about, you're standing on the edge of something that people really do take for granted, that they have a sense of identity, that they have a sense of place, that they have a sense of belonging. And (laughs) I think as a writer, you're not always afforded that luxury. And that's where the work and the art comes from because of a really profound discomfort. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I also feel like the times that we're living in is actually taking that luxury away Mm -hmm. for for most people. You never know. I feel like in in today's world, you really never know if, if home is going to be there tomorrow, if you are going to belong. It's become so fraught. And this is where social media comes in. And social media plays a very big role in glory. And not that it wasn't around... We need new names as contemporary. Social media has taken on new weight in the last decade or so. Between the bots and the disinformation and the propaganda and the lack of media literacy and all sorts of pieces that we're wrestling that are not good, that are ugly and cruel and just really, in some cases, gross. There is an opportunity, though, to create community and reinforce community. And I think we've seen this to a certain extent with Zimbabwean expats and the pressure that they were able to put from outside of the country. And it started small, 
But you allude to a lot of this. You're like, and we had these hashtags and people started talking and then it got bigger and the tech is there. And then it started to pull in the community. And you were saying, well, Animal Farm kept being mentioned on social media in the context yeah, of all of it. Definitely. It's, it's actually interesting. I'm not that active on social media. Mm-hmm. I don't have Twitter, for instance. I had to learn how Twitter works for writing the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Twitter chapters in this book. But at the same time, I was drawn by just the power, the force of social media in terms of building community, not just with Zimbabweans, but really across all kinds of borders. I think some of the most active movements happened on social media and trended, Black Lives Matter being one of them all over the world. And that really inspired the heart of the book that deals with social media, though I was also aware of the importance of making a connection between that world and the real world. I think I call them the other country and the country country, because in as much as there is so much work being done in in terms of raising awareness, in terms of creating solidarity, that work does not amount to much if we do not reconcile it with what is happening on the ground. Even though glory is populated by characters who are animals, you never lose sight of the humanity in the story. And I'm wondering, do you have a favorite moment? Because there are some intense things that happen in the course of this book, but you have a very wry sense of humor and it pops every now and again. And I'm just wondering if you have a moment that you were just like, oh yeah, this has to stay. I love this moment. And it does all of the things I need it to do in in the span of the narrative, but also I just love it. Uh, that's a hard one. I'll be thinking about it. There are so many moments. I insist on being entertained when I write. I insist on the humor, in part because it makes my work even approachable to me. I, I do realize that I tend toward difficult subjects. And part of what allows me to write around them is the humor. So it is what keeps me present and interested and going. Otherwise, it it will be difficult. Aren't the difficult subjects, too, the things that make us who we are? Isn't that when we find out what we're actually made of? I mean, there are moments in history, and certainly the last few years, not just in America, there's been a lot. And I feel like we keep making the same poor choices in character. (laughs) I'm trying to dance around this a little bit because, you know, we are talking about books and literature. But how do you separate the art from the people, I don't think you can. I don't I don't think you can separate art from the people who create it. I don't think you can separate art from the places it comes from and the stories that inform the people who make it. And I don't want to slot things into neat boxes, but when I see these patterns and these things we keep repeating, I know, you know, when I look at what's happening right now in the world and I'm reading Glory and my head is sort of starting to throb a little bit and I'm putting it down for a minute because things are running very close to home. Yes, absolutely. And you're writing about things that happened five, six years ago. Yes. And it feels like you wrote this last week. Unfortunately, yes. So what's that like for you, though? I mean, obviously, you're not trying to keep up with current events. You're trying to tell the story of people, your people and your place. And yet, wow, something shifted in the universe. And here we are. I mean, what does that feel like for you as the writer? It's strange. Unfortunately, it's not worth celebrating because we are in this messy place that we really should not be because we could be better if we wanted. It's one of those strange 
moments where life is following art. And it's not the first story. It makes me, again, thinking about the role of art, the books in our lives. It makes me wonder if we are reading enough, if we are giving more power to art and books, because our reality actually says otherwise. You know, we are, we are missing a lot. We are missing something. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about Glory is you can feel the sort of oral storytelling tradition that's behind it. I mean, a lot happens. This is not just people sitting around talking about things. A lot happens. And that sort of fluidity in your prose and the movement in the story, but yet there are multiple points in the story where you come back and someone will say, well, words are power or words can bring back the dead. And that you never lose sight of the words. So when you're sitting down to draft, what does that look like for you? I mean, are you a linear writer? Or are you going sort of, here's the scene I need and I'll figure out how to work it in later? What does that look like for you? I'm a nonlinear writer. I tend to follow moments, especially early on in the project, moments that come to me because they are important or compelling and I build around them. I write by hand. But before I write by hand, I write in my head quite a bit. I think that could have something to do with hearing stories and wanting to hear my story before I actually put it down. So those first drafts, that between the first drafts that happen in the head and then the first draft where I actually sit and try to write forward, I start from, I'm really all over the place. I think it's maybe draft two, draft three, where my work starts to get the neat linear shape of moving forward. But I obsess quite a lot with language. It could be because despite my relationship with English, I mean, it's an official language in Zimbabwe. We learn it from first grade. It's still not a language of intimacy for me. I can function very well with it. But when it comes to creating, I think I obsess and work extra hard from the realization that I'm writing outside my mother tongue. It's an issue for me. I, I don't claim it as my language of creation, but it's a good complication because it forces me to, to do something to it to the point that I feel comfortable, to the point that I feel like, okay, now I have forged or created something that makes me sound true on the page. It's not pretty when I'm working, but I appreciate the final product. It's a, it's a challenge that I'm always up for with every new project, finding that language with which to tell the story. It almost becomes as important as, as the story itself. Yeah, and as one of your readers, I really appreciate that because <laughs> yeah. you always do fight in the right language. And it is really, when I think about the shift in Darling's voice, for instance, and We Need New Names, or the shift in, I want to say, you know, sort of the general narrative cadence in glory for so many of the characters, many of whom are surprised by what happens to them and their expectations are either outsized or out of line. It's really extraordinary. And it's your control of language that allows that to happen in a way that is so profoundly believable. And again, the leader of the country is a horse. His wife is a donkey. Destiny's a goat. Destiny's mom is a goat. The Military is made up of dogs. There's a religious head who's a pig. You know, the vice president's a horse. And yet, this is a really profound 
human mm. work. So I know you mentioned Toni Morrison as an influence, and I know you mentioned Edward P. Jones as an influence. And I'm always excited when I hear a writer mention Edward Jones. And if we can get, you know, the reading public to start talking about Edward Jones again in a way that writers talk about him, I would be a very happy bookseller. Who are some of the other influences on your work? Juno Diaz, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Novio Chuma, who's actually slightly younger than me, is a writer whose work is very precious. I feel like I'm always in conversation with her. And by extension, the generation, my generation of Zimbabwean writers, of course, we don't sit and talk, but it could be because we are coming from the same space and dealing with the same concerns. Well, I'll, I'll leave it there <laughs> because the, the names can't come to my head for, for some reason right now. I do think we just carry around the writers. Yeah, I was actually listening to Glory, the version that's from my iPad, I think it was Siri reading Glory. Of course, I had to bring Siri in the novel somehow. <laughs> and I, I realized I kept hearing my father. There are these tens of phrase, especially Toluguti. I, I think you might remember that weird phrase in the book, which literally translates to you find that. It's something that a storyteller would use. And I realized that, okay, this dude really is now late. It's such an influence that, you know, there are certain phrases of his that live on in my work. And I think I actually acknowledged in my acknowledgements page, the storytellers I have known, because sometimes you meet these people who are just beautiful storytellers, that their voices stick with you, the way they see things, the way they, they narrate story. So unfortunately they didn't write books, but um, I owe some of who I am on the page to their influence as well. What's next for you? I'm working on a screenplay. I won't say more. That's more. okay. <laughs> but that's what I'm doing. And I'm quite excited to be slowly branching into that's very exciting. I'm finding it very exciting. And also after coming from such a long project, it's a nice break. That's very cool. I cannot wait to see whatever it is. And we'll just... We'll sit quietly in the corner and we can wait. We waited for glory. We can wait for whatever the unnamed thing is. <laughs> All right. It's coming. It's coming. No, Violet Bolawea, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Glory is out now. And folks, if you haven't read We Need New Names, please, 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 it's in paperback. Go pick it up. Thank you. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.